CBHDD is reminding people that the Georgia Crisis and Access Line can help those worried about opioid and stimulant misuse. The toll-free number is online and is active 24-7. More information at opioidresponse.info. Thank you for uh, joining us for another edition of Political Rewind today. I'm Bill Nygut. Uh, glad to have all of you with us. We're going to get a little bit of a jump today on August 5th on the celebration of the 100th anniversary of the passage of the 19th Amendment, the Amendment to the United States Constitution, which once and for all, after long campaigns, after great controversy, finally gave women the right to vote in this country. And we have a terrific uh, panel to talk about the women's, the women's vote, how it has developed over the years, and, and very importantly, what we expect to see happen in uh, the 2020 election in terms of women voters. We're joined today for that conversation by Professor Amy Steigerwald, a political science professor at Georgia State University. Um, Amy, of course, one of the reasons we were very uh, eager to have you as a part of this show is that you have looked at women in politics, women elect, how they get elected, by whom they're getting elected. It's one of your areas of specialty. So thank you for being here for the show today. Thanks for having me. We are also joined by a professor of political science, uh, Andra Gillespie. Dr. Gillespie is also the director of the James Weldon Johnson Institute at Emory University, which uh, looks at matters of uh, race and uh, clearly has become uh, very important to her work today. Uh, Andra, how are you? Glad to have you back with us as well. Thanks for having me. Yeah. Uh, We're also joined by two women who are fiercely partisan on their sides of the aisle. Uh, And it's one of the things we love about them. Uh, We're joined by Julianne Thompson, a Republican strategist. Uh, Julianne, a founder years ago, back in 2010, of one of the biggest tea parties in the state of Georgia. Uh, But since then, she's gone on to work in state politics, uh, in in, uh, uh, Republican Party politics in the state of Georgia and nationally. Hi, Julianne. Welcome. Hi, thanks for having me. Sure. And Melita Easters is back. Melita, of course, is the founder and the director of the Georgia Win List, uh, which works on identifying and supporting uh, women for uh, office who are pro-choice. Uh, Melita, you have gotten a, you have a remarkable women for a, a record for recruiting women. Julianne Thompson on this show has said on a number of occasions that she only wishes she could do as well in recruiting Republican women to run for <laughs> office as you've done. Thank you for being here, Melita. Thanks for having me. All right, so let's get this going. Um, what? I don't want to belabor the point, but just for a moment, let's talk about the uh, uh, passage of the 19th Amendment. Um, I was looking at research on all this the other day, and I noticed that Pew, the Pew Research Center, had uh, earlier in July uh, released a study in which they talked to Americans about their views of what had happened in the aftermath of the 19th Amendment. And here's the uh, lead of their report. A hundred years after the 19th Amendment was ratified, about half of Americans say granting women the right to vote has been the most important milestone in advancing the position of women 
in the country. Still, a majority of U.S. adults say the country hasn't gone far enough uh, when it comes to giving women equal rights with men, even as large a large share think there has been progress in the last decade. Now, today on our show, we're not going to delve too deeply into the issue of equal rights. I mean, we know, for instance, that only a handful of women are CEOs of Fortune 500 uh, companies, to take just one example of that. But I think it's fair to say, uh, Dr. Gillespie, um, um, I'm sorry, let me start with Amy Steigerwald. Um, I think it's fair to say, Amy Steigerwald, that in the 100 years that women have had the right to vote in this country, for much of that time, in the 20th century, uh, 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 once they got the right to vote, they were pretty much voting in lockstep with their husbands. At one point, there were many women who weren't even convinced they should have the right to vote. There's a famous anecdote that Theodore Roosevelt was a supporter of suffrage, and before the amendment was passed, he told a crowd of people, a crowd of women, please, I wish I, you need to give women the right to vote. I wish I could convince my wife and my daughter of that. So for a long time, uh, women had the vote, but it wasn't making a mu- much of a difference. That started to change dramatically with the election of Ronald Reagan in 1980. If I got that right, Amy? Yes. And I think it is also important to note that while technically women were all granted the right to vote right in 1920, that was disproportionately given also to white women. Right. There were still uh, barriers that Uh, were in place, obviously, for minority women. Right. And that started to really shift once we had the Voting Rights Act in 1965 um, that was trying to target some of those issues. But so where we. Yes. So starting in 1980, we start to see a shift. We start to see more women registering to vote. We start to see also the vote, which parties are registering for and also where women are voting, um, starting to diverge more and more from um, their husbands and their fathers. And now what we see is actually pretty stark differences. Um, Really in like the last decade, I think is where it's really kind of blown up that we now see that women consistently turn out at much higher rates than men do. Um, Women also uh, support the Democratic Party at much higher rates than men do. Um, And that really breaks down across sort of all racial lines, which I think is really important. And this is also where I think it's important to even look within areas. So, for example, like we talk a lot about sort of in general that um, like, for example, people of color vote at lower rates than uh, whites, but that's actually not true if we look at the combination and particularly look at black women. Black women have some of the highest turnout rates of anyone, um, and so that sort of gets lost in the shuffle when we just look at it overall. Black men, the turnout rates are, are getting better, but they're not great, but black women turn out at incredibly high rates and register to vote and are actually turning out in in numbers that are high really there. And so that's been a huge shift that we've really seen. And it's also come along with, um, especially in the last decade, a huge number of women on both sides of the aisle, again, primarily on the Democratic side, of actually running for office as well. So uh, just to make a point, uh, Andre Gillespie, uh, what happened in 1980 when Ronald Reagan beat Jimmy Carter, the, 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 the vote showed that both men and women did favor uh, Ronald Reagan. But 
for the first time, we saw a split between men and women in which women were very narrowly in favor of Ronald Reagan, while men voted for Ronald Reagan in much more significant numbers. Men, some 55 to 36 percent. Women, very, very close. And that was really where we started. That's the gender gap in terms of voters. Since then, women have tended to gravitate more to voting Democratic uh, in in elections uh, since then, and more, just as important, if not more important, it, really picking up on what Amy said, uh, they vote in larger proportions than men uh, in virtually every election. Andra, so this raises some interesting measurement questions. I mean, there are some folks who might actually carry the mark back a little bit earlier, but it's 1980 is sort of the standard year where we noticed that this started to happen. Um, but how we define a gender gap is actually really important. I do see some journalists who will define the gender gap by sort of taking sort of the which group was least likely to vote Democratic and which group was most likely to vote Republican. And, and so the standard way that I actually prefer to define the gender gap is pick a party. Since we're talking about differences in Democratic voting behavior, we'll pick the Democratic <laughs> Party. And we will subtract the percentage of men who vote Democratic from the percentage of women who vote Democratic. So usually where we get that number that's usually in can be anywhere from like, you know, six to 16 points usually. That's usually where we're defining that. And so what we've seen is that women um, are more likely to vote Democratic in uh, presidential elections. Oh, and we can do this for any type of election than their male counterparts are. All right. Um, so that's a great way to set the stage for all this. Um, uh, Melita, uh, one of the points that uh, Amy Steigerwald made is that it's not just a matter of women uh, showing up to vote. They're showing up increasingly. We see more and more female candidates. Um, and and certainly the win list has had a big impact on, on that, on the Democratic side of the equation. Um, talk a little bit about how you've t- uh, monitored over the year. When did you found the win list? Win list was founded 20 years ago. And during that time, we've helped elect more than 70 women, 44 of whom still serve. But what we have seen since 2016 is huge increases in the number of women willing to run for office. We had record-setting numbers of women run in 2018, and those records are broken now in 2020. And we have, WinList has 54 women on the ballot in November, well, 44 who will still be on the ballot in November. But the other thing that's very interesting, I think, for Georgia at least, is that in two congressional districts, we have only women candidates on the ballot in November. And in a third congressional district, um, the woman is a clear favorite to win. And so we see, uh, as as a Democrat, um, we see the possibility of Georgia having three women in Congress for the first time ever in state history. We've had women in Congress off and on since 1940, but we've never had more than one woman from Georgia in Congress at any given time. So that's a pretty so, dramatic So mention the, the, uh, the three districts being, obviously the six, Lucy McBath, the incumbent six, Lucy facing McBath, Karen Handel, who has a woman opponent, Karen Handel. The seventh, Carolyn Bordeaux, um, who came very close to winning that seat in 2018. And then, of course, the Congressional District 5, you already had a Republican nominee running against um, the legendary Congressman Lewis. And now you have a Democratic woman 
selected as the Democratic nominee. So one way or another, Congressional District 5, long um, represented by the legendary Congressman Lewis, will be represented by a woman come January. So that will one excite other quick women question. turnout. One other quick question, and then I want to move on to get Julianne's take on all this. Uh, what is the success rate of women candidates running, say, for the seats that you have uh, helped uh, encourage women to run for? I, I don't know if you have an exact percentage, but in general, are they the winning? Are they having trouble win. winning? More than half of the women <laughs> we endorse win. Now, we don't endorse every Democratic woman who runs, but more than sure. half of the women we endorse do win. And at least 10 of the 17 women running for flippable House seats had higher voter turnout from Republican, I mean, for Democratic voters than Republican voters in the primary in that district. And the same is true for four of the seven Senate seats. All right, Julianne Thompson, let's get you into this conversation. You have talked on this show over the last few years about how uh, how much you really have tried to encourage women to run for uh, as Republicans in races, and you've been very candid in saying it's been a challenge. Uh, how is that shaping up these days? I mean, we haven't talked to you about this subject for a while. Is it continuing to be hard for Republicans to identify women who could be strong contenders on the ballot at various levels? Well, I, th- I definitely think that the women are there. Uh, the problem is getting enough momentum within the party structure and within the donor structure to actually be able to fund an initiative like the one Melita is doing on the Democratic side, doing that on the Republican side. Um, first, uh, let, let me just say, as we all know, women are not monolithic in their thinking, and there are a lot of Republican women out there who would respond very well to a Republican woman candidate. And I don't think that a lot of the powers that be really understand the importance of messaging when it comes to Republican women. And they even more do not understand the importance of having the right messenger. And I've said in the past, I've I've, uh, talked about the fact that when Democrats talked about the war against women, instead of the Republicans sending out a strong conservative well-spoken Republican woman, we sent out Karl Rove to answer that call. And that has been a real problem when it comes to the Republican Party is understanding. Explain what what that means. Explain what that means. What it means is it's not just about your message. It's not just about your policy. It's about your messenger. You have to speak. You have to understand that you have to have the right messenger for the audience. And Karl Rove was not the right messenger to speak to the issue that women were being overlooked when it comes to the Republican Party. We needed to send a strong Republican woman out there. We've got a lot of work to do when it comes to the female vote and when it comes to getting women to run for office in the Republican Party. Um, That being said, I'm very excited about some things that are happening within the party. I'm excited about the fact that both of the chiefs of staff for both of our senators, our Republican senators uh, representing the state of Georgia, are women. So that's very exciting. This is the first time that's happened. And um, I'm very excited about the fact that 
the chairman of the Republican National Committee is a woman, and she's done a very good job speaking on behalf of the party. So I think that we are making inroads, but I think we have a lot of work to do when it comes to understanding um, that women, that, that it's about the right voices, it's about relatable voices, and the language that's used in messaging. Yeah, and to really pick up on sort of things that both Julianne and Melita mentioned, um, you know, in our research, what we've really found is that many times the women candidates you do see do incredibly well, in part because they've overcome a lot of obstacles to get there, and women are much less likely to express political ambition sort of in general than men, like they're when there's been tons of studies that have, that have looked at this, that when women are asked about sort of their qualifications and whether or not they, are, they should run for office, they're much less likely to vote them, to rank themselves as being ready, even if they've got a huge amass of qualifications. And so what you see is that those who then say, okay, are convinced many times, right, by repeated efforts of people trying to convince them to run, to run, they do incredibly well because that sort of bar to get in is so much higher and they've masked that. And so part of what happens to kind of pick up on Julianne's point is there is this issue of to what degree the party itself is also, and especially those sort of gatekeepers and the fundraisers and things like that are encouraging people to run. So I'll give a plug. I've got um, a graduate student who's actually looking at the issue of um, political ambition and particularly in Republican women. And part of what she's finding is that it's not an issue of sort of the eligibility pool, but what we do see is a lot less, um, Republican women are way less likely to report, for example, that they've been encouraged to even think about running for office, that they've been encouraged to think about promotions, that they've been encouraged to think about sort of going that, and the reality, the, the sort of flip side is that unfortunately studies continue to show that women have to be asked to run for office about eight times before they'll say yes. That's fascinating, Andra. Yeah, so I mean, I just kind of wanted to build on what Amy was talking about with the pipeline literature and sort of what the connection is to all of that. Um, you know, the reason why women don't run for office or the reason why w women don't win for office isn't a quality issue. Once you control for quality, men and women have equal chances of getting elected. The issue is sort of how we socialize women into thinking that they, in fact, can be leaders. And so when uh, Republicans respond to attacks that they're sexist by having a man come and mansplain stuff, uh, right, it sends the, wrong, it sends the completely wrong optic. Um, and it certainly shows a certain level of tone deafness, but it also evidences a certain sort of lack of sensitivity to what privilege actually looks like, because that's privilege actually operating in real time. And so that might actually cause Republicans to interrogate some of their structures. And I, you know, I know that this is, you know, sometimes a little bit of a sensitive topic, but if people who are in positions of leadership always talk up to guys like it's a good old boy club room. If they, you know, are sitting at the dinner table and they have sons and daughters and they groom the sons for political office, but they don't groom their daughters for political office, right? Like these are the kinds of sort of like, you know, very practical brass tacks things that people can kind of search and interrogate in their own hearts. 
if people aren't willing to have that type of reckoning, then you're probably going to end up replicating the same types of problems that you're beating your head with against the wall. Because a lot of the things that people like Melita have done have been nonpartisan, and they actually are looking to recruit Republican women to run for office. And it's those structures that are in place, like the nonpartisan Yale Women's Campaign School, that are there to try to overcome the old boy network that, that seems to be at play. And that's actually been true in both Democratic and Republican circles. One point that I would like to make, Bill, if you don't mind, is that, first off, women work very hard as candidates. Women will knock more doors, go to more meetings, and reach out to more voters one-on-one pre-COVID than men would. Women have been very imaginative on both sides of the aisle, in how they have reacted to COVID and in in planning gatherings and planning webinar postcard parties. The other thing that I think we're seeing, probably on both sides of the aisle, although I'm more um, familiar with the biographies of the women I work with, is that in the past, women tended to get into politics only after they had raised their children. For example, Nancy Pelosi's youngest child was a senior in high school when she first ran for um, Congress. But right now, among the 54 women WinList has endorsed, we have 28 women who are the mothers of children 18 and younger, and only eight of those women are currently in office. So it would shift dramatically how policies are discussed to have that many more mothers of young children at the table. The other thing that we're seeing is that women who are very well qualified um, are running. 33 of our women have advanced degrees, and some of them have multiple advanced degrees. Eight of them are attorneys. Three of them have scientific PhDs, including one practicing physician. So you have a different kind of woman offering for office. Thank you for that. Julianne, before I take a break, I want to get you in again. Sure. I had two quick points. Uh, first, I wanted to build on what Andra and um, Amy had said just a few minutes ago. Yeah. It's not about the fact that women are not uh, possessing the right qualifications to run, A lot of times I think that we find, and we find this even on both sides of the aisle, women, when they have political ambition, they're called overly aggressive and they're painted as such. Men are called ambitious, women are called aggressive. So there's a certain stigma, I think, that in in some circles that have been put on women who are politically ambitious. Um, But I'll, I'll tell you what a Republican congressman, a former Republican Georgia congressman told me, um, about uh, several, about three years ago when I was asking him what the problem was in Washington, D.C. when it comes to, uh, to women leading projects and when it comes to quality work. He said, when it comes to work in general in Washington, um, if you want to know what is wrong with Washington, D.C., and if you want to understand why uh, things do not go as they should and why there is not enough quality in Washington, D.C., All you have to do is know that 
work is not given to the most qualified people. Work is not given projects or, and leadership positions are not always given to the most qualified people. They are given to your friends. They're given to the beer buddies. They're given to the guys that you go have a beer with after work. That's who the projects are given to. And he said, that's the way it's always been. And he said, hopefully that's not the way it will always be. But he said, Julianne, you're never going to be an after work beer buddy. I have got to tell you, we got to get to a break, but I've got to tell you, Julianne, um, you made the comment when I see, and I want to talk a little bit about this later in the show, but when I see uh, uh, Kamala Harris, uh, one of the parent Biden's uh, possible choices for VP, uh, talked about in a critical way as as too ambitious, I find that completely outrageous. It, it recalls for me, I covered Jesse Jackson's presidential campaign a little bit in 84, but very extensively in 88. I was on the road with Jackson a lot. And it was the same thing with him as an African-American male candidate. He's too ambitious. We celebrate ambition in white men. And now women are being accused of what Jesse was back there in 1988. So, look, I come out of a household with two very, very strong women, and I would put either of them up to any man in any job they wanted to take on. So thank you for making that point. Let's do this. Let's get to a quick break. When we come back, really important trend that seems to be developing, which suggests that women are increasingly, there's a huge wave of women moving towards voting Democratic. We'll talk about that after these messages. As I said at the top of the show, we're kind of celebrating the 100th anniversary of the 19th passage of the 19th Amendment, which gave women the right to vote a little early. It actually happens on August 18th, but we got a great uh, panel of women talking about women voters and uh, women candidates uh, right now in this 2020 cycle. Melita Easters joins us, Julianne Thompson, Andra Gillespie, and Amy Steigerwald. Um, <clears throat> we are going to talk. I want to come back to this notion about... Uh, Kamala Harris and the other women who Joe Biden is apparently considering. And I want to get to that in in just a a couple of minutes. But before I do, I I really want to talk about, and Andre, let me start with you on this. Um, Brookings uh, put out a report, uh, I think fairly recently, in February. And here's here's the the top of this report. I'm going to read a little bit here, and then I want to get everybody to weigh in, starting with you, Andre. They say the future is female, how the growing political power of women will remake American politics. The most profound change in American politics today and in the years to come will result from a massive movement of women into the Democratic Party. As this realignment takes place, Hillary Clinton may well go down in history as this century's equivalent of Al Smith. Al Smith was the Democratic nominee for president in 1928 and the first Roman Catholic ever nominated by a major political party. They go on to say he lost the election, um, but when Franklin Roosevelt ran in 1932, uh, he, he attracted all of those Catholic votes that Al Smith had, and it gave him an enormous uh, advantage uh, in, the, in, in the vote. He won by a, a, a large margin. And so... Uh, Brookings says Hillary Clinton is doing that uh, for women moving to the Democratic Party. 
And I'm just, first of all, uh, Andra, what do you what do you think about Brookings' conclusion there? Um, so I, I don't I don't have any issue with the notion of the idea that the future is female, um, but I do want to problematize it a little bit or just make it you know make it a little bit more complex. So I don't necessarily credit sure. it. Hillary Clinton, per se, with driving women to the Democratic Party, because as we've seen, this gap has been apparent for at least 40, and some people would argue 50 years. Um, So, you know, we didn't need Hillary Clinton to get us there, all due respect to her. Um, And also, part of the reason why the Democratic Party um, is so female is also because of structural issues related to race, and I don't want to ignore that. So even though we do see gender gaps across racial groups, what those gaps look like and sort of where they fall is different for different racial and ethnic groups. So, yeah, there's a gender gap between black men and black women, but we're talking about the difference between, you know, 96 percent Democratic voting and 87 percent Democratic voting. Um, And that's a big difference than when you're talking about the same type of difference between, you know, 55 percent and 45 percent. Um, and also it's exacerbated by other types of structural issues. So part of the reason why African-American women turn out at such a large rate and play such an outsized role in democratic politics is because even though this is true for both black men and black women, blacks are more likely to be tied up in the criminal justice system of black men even more so. And so black women end up playing an outsized role in politics because they're just a number of men who cannot vote because they are currently incarcerated or they're in states where they may not have gotten their voting rights back yet. Um, you know, we know that, that, that that's kind of fluid and that that, that changes over time. Um, and so the Democratic Party really looks um, sort of very female and democratic, and that's largely being driven by the fact that you have women of color. Um, like when we talked about sort of single women in the mid-aughts, that was largely driven by the fact that women of color are less likely to get married. So, you know, it's fine. I don't, I don't, I don't dispute that, but I also want to make it a little, put more texture to it and make it more complex. Well, let me just very quickly uh, on that point, uh, Julianne, thinking specifically about November 3rd, 2020, um, I, I take Andre's point about African-American women being hugely uh, oriented towards voting for Democrats. But um, <clears throat> when President Trump, uh, as he's doing currently, uh, uh, tries to court clearly white suburban women, talks about them as housewives, a term that we really, I, if I use that term on the air, I'd be, I wouldn't have a show tomorrow. <laughs> um <laughs> You know, that's not helping encourage women, white women, especially in this case, to turn out uh, for the Republican ticket in the fall, Julianne. It's a it's a problem for your party, isn't it? Well, I think it's really important that Republicans understand issues that are important to women. And I I'm sure that the four of us who are on this panel right now are probably not in dis- are probably not in agreement on a lot of policy issues and that's perfectly fine but i think what we are in agreement on is issues like justice reform public safety jobs equal pay for women child care those issues are extremely important to women on both sides of the aisle and that is something that going back to the messaging issue when i talked about the republican party and i talked about the right messenger This is going to the right message. We need to be talking more about those issues and and the uh, the stands that Republicans are taking and the uh, the moving forward, as as you will, um, that the Republican Party is doing when it comes to those issues. 
And I don't think that we've really put those issues into focus enough to speak to the suburban women who are going to decide this presidential election. And again, um, I go back to the to the right messenger, um, because when it comes to women, you know, in the past in the Republican Party, we were the people that they said, oh, well, she's a nice lady. Let's have her lead a phone banking group or um, let's, you know, let's get the Republican women together to do some envelope stuffing. That's not the way it is in 2020 anymore. And for people in the Republican Party that still view women as that way, we are not going to win with that sort of a message. And, you know, political consultants need to understand, you know, for them, it's mostly just about meeting benchmarks and metrics. But for women, it's about relatable voices and relationships. And I think that, you know, looking at some of the messaging that the Democrats have done, although I disagree with a lot of their message and I disagree with their policies, they've done a good job at building um, relatable candidates who have a message that women can can relate to. And I think we have a lot of work to do as the Republican Party uh, when it comes to to messaging to women, just like I said before. Thank you. Um, there, there was something, Bill, that, that I thought was very interesting in the Brookings study, and that is there were two sentences. The increasing attachment to the Democratic Party reflects a deep-seated belief by women that most Republican men don't see the world the way they do. And then a few sentences later, it said 81% of men identifying with or leaning toward the GOP perceive that the, quote, obstacles that once made it harder for women to get ahead are largely gone, end quote. So that cluelessness amongst Republican men about where women stand and the fact that women still face huge obstacles when it comes to equal pay and child care and, and so many of the other things, I, I find myself loving a Keb Mo song right now about put the women in charge, which says one of the lyrics is, here we are standing on the brink of disaster, put the women in charge. And and we are on the brink of disaster economically and with this pandemic. And I think the pragmatic approach, the compassionate approach women in office bring to setting public policy is something that many voters are ready to see. So I'll, I'll give a total shameless plug here. So the, the title of the book that I wrote with my colleague, Jeff Lazarus, is actually Gendered, Gendered Vulnerability, How Women Work Harder to Stay in Office. And so we were looking at women who had won and then what it means for them actually in office and the type of work that they do and what came out of the interviews that we did up on Capitol Hill are that even the women who are elected don't feel like they've made it. They constantly feel as though they have to prove themselves uh, to the voters, but also to their colleagues, right? And really to their male colleagues, that they in fact should be there, that they should be respected, that their views should be heard. And I think that that really comes in and picking up on some of the points, um, particularly that Julianne was saying, that you know a lot of the Republican women that we spoke with some of the obstacles that they really voiced were the issues of having their, you know, senior Republican male colleagues take seriously their 
place at the table, right? That they were supposed to be there, that they had the seat, that they had alternative views to bring to it. Um, and we sort of saw that, I think, in some uh, one that, you know, was on one hand sort of a funny situation, but on the other hand not, was when there was the discussion, right, remember back during the Affordable Care Act debate about maternity coverage. And one of the men said, well, I don't need that, at which point one of the women responded, well, but your mother did. And in fact, everyone's mother in this room did. And it was that thing of had there not been a woman in the room, everybody would have said, well, yeah, this isn't something that we need. Whereas having women in the room makes that difference and allows us to look sort of more holistically. But it's also about ensuring getting those votes. And so that's really, I think, one of the sort of broader issues is that it's not and, and I think Julianne made a great point about this, is not simply about the message, but it's also the messenger and understanding about whether or not the message in fact is even being heard and who is getting to express it. And that goes even more further. Because again, when you start to see that it's not being sort of welcomed in, that you get also sort of the issues that Andre was talking about of people of color and women that when you're not really doing a lot of the party isn't doing a lot of organizations to bring in both the voters as well as the candidates, it has much larger repercussions. And, and, and to kind of build on Amy's point, when the room is homogeneous, that's kind of when bad decisions get made. And so to sort of build on the healthcare example, you know, there was a point at which it was all men who were making decisions about women's healthcare on, with respect to the Affordable Care Act. And it's like, how can you do that if you have no idea what it's like to get a breast exam, if you've never had to get a pap smear before, if you've never had to take a pregnancy test? Um, and I've mentioned this on the show before. Um, you know, I, I remember David um, Perdue sort of mentioning why his wife shouldn't have to have, you know, OBGYN coverage and her health insurance because she was postmenopausal. And it's like, she still has to go to the gynecologist, right? All those parts are still there. Uh, they may not work the same way they did when she was 20, um, but you need to <laughs> check them to make sure that, uh, you know, that, that she doesn't have any malignancies there. And so, you know what, a woman is probably closer to that and might actually like hear that and immediately perk up. It doesn't matter what her party is. And I see that as the same thing that was happening a couple of weeks ago when we saw the fight between Ted Yoho and, and, and Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez, mm -hmm. right? Whether or not you agree with either of them, the allegations that were being put forward were that this was a hostile work environment for women legislators to be in. And so can we at least have a respect that, like, people don't call folks names, particularly names that are just inherently sexist? Right? That's an important conversation that I think anybody can get behind, regardless of their partisan position. I, I I got to stop you because I've got to get to a break. Uh, let's do that and come back with more on Political Rewind. Uh, Professor Andra Gillespie, Professor Amy Steigerwald, Julianne Thompson, Melita Easters join us to talk about women in politics right now. Uh, we're not going to have a lot of time for this because I really do want to talk about the Biden VP choices, which obviously right now appear to be female. Uh, but uh, Amy Steigerwald, as I was researching uh, for this show today, I came across a term that was completely new to me, uh, guardian women which seems to be the term that has taken the place of soccer women. And according to All In Together, the progressive women's uh, group that, it, that works for civic engagement by women, uh, they call them, uh, they are 
uh, largely white, married, over 50. They live mostly in suburban areas, have incomes over $50,000, and don't typically have college degrees. Are you? This is a term that's brand new to me, so help me understand it, Amy Steigerwald. I'm afraid that my answer may not be the one that you want. Um, I had never heard this either, <laughs> and I have to admit, yeah. I, me being me, was trying to find the underlying poll results because I can't figure out how they identified this group, nor how large of a group they were out of because they did a poll of a thousand, and then they were a subset, and that was sort of unclear. But it does seem well, as though what they're really identifying are basically old, the soccer moms are now older. Well, but it's important because, Andra, they seem to be suggesting that these are women who can be persuadable to vote for President Trump. They're concerned about security. They're concerned about safety in their homes, a message that Trump is certainly putting out right now, Amy. I mean, Andra. So, I mean, you know, it is there seems to be a new term every few election cycles about sort of, you know, white women right. who may or may not be swing voters, who may not be swing voters. And I kind of want to emphasize that end of it. Um, and I just, I, you know, I, that strikes me at this point as being pretty happy. Um, so both parties and both campaigns are going to have to try to figure out who their base of support <laughs> is. And just the idea that you're going to sort of put one group of women in charge of saving America, like, you know, and I think that's in 2017 Alabama Senate race where black women were the guardians. Um, and, and, and sort of in response to this, this is actually the part that my co-author Nadia Brown and I wrote for this article that was published in Phylon last year. Uh, we're trying to get beyond black girl magic. We're trying to get beyond sort of looking at groups of women to save us from things um, and to just treat people as, as, as actually being um, – citizens who care and want to exercise their rights about what's going on. And so I think that, you know, part of the reason why they're identifying the guardian moms is because Trump has clearly made this play for suburban women that he thinks are white um, and don't have jobs when that's actually not the reality about what's going on in these communities today. All right. I want to look, I saved the last portion of the show to talk about women who are very potentially powerful in this election cycle. And that is that Joe Biden, Melita Easters, is likely to pick a woman as his running mate and probably an African-American woman. But, Melita, let's be candid about this. One of the things that's happening here is that the longer Joe Biden delays and the longer we see this, what is allegedly a short list of Susan Rice, Kamala Harris, for a while, Karen Bass, although today we're being told she may be off because she didn't do particularly well on the Sunday talk shows. Democrats are starting to eat their own Melita. And as we described earlier, all of a sudden, Kamala Harris is being criticized for being too ambitious. Karen Bass for uh, liking Fidel Castro. This is not the best way for your party to establish Joe Biden as a guy who is can make strong decisions, and it's undermining the women who are apparently at the top of his list. Tell me why I'm wrong. You're not wrong. Um, and, and really, Chris Dodd needs to go back to his white male privileged tower and shut up. For a 30-year United States senator who also served six years in the House, who is the son of a senator and went to Georgetown Prep, to be talking about women being too ambitious is just appalling. So Chris Dodd and his ilk need to hush. 
Joe Biden needs to make his decision, and all the Democrats need to fall into line supporting the woman who would be one heartbeat away from the presidency. Andre, Andre, you point out that the uh, uh, accusation of Kamala Harris is too ambitious. It's not just based on gender. It's based, you believe, on race as well. So, you know, part of the issue with this race is given Joe Biden's age, whoever he picks is probably going to be in a really strong position to succeed him as president of the United States, whether or not he dies in office or whether, like, she would get to succeed him by running in an election in her own right. And so the fight here is about picking the heir apparent the heiress apparent in, in, in this particular sure. case. And, you know, because of the importance of African-American women to the Democratic Party, because of that stupid interview with Charlemagne the God, and then because of the police protest, there's a lot of pressure on Joe Biden to pick an African-American woman, which means that the path is being cleared for the first female president of the United States to be a black woman um, or a woman of color. Um, and I think quiet as kept, there's some people who might be a little bit uncomfortable with that. Um, and so this is the reason why, um, you know, African-American feminist scholars in particular coined the term intersectionality to talk about those differences where pe- women don't always, get, uh, you know, work together or work in each other's best interest because race sometimes trumps um, uh, gender in terms of thinking about this. The same thing happens within African-American communities. And so I think we have to be honest about sort of what's going on here and learn to check our privileges and sort of check sometimes what is actually informing some of our behavior, right? It's not necessarily being done magnanimously. It's being done for really sexist, selfish, and racist reasons. Julianne? Well, I mean, I, I agree that it's, uh, it's definitely, there's definitely a double standard going on there. Um, but I, I will also say that there is a big difference between accusing someone of being too ambitious and accusing someone of liking Fidel Castro, there is there is a big difference there. And I do think um, I do think that that Congresswoman Bass has made some statements that she should not have made, and that are going to reflect poorly on her when it comes to making it through the vetting process. That being said, I mean if I mean of course I'm not a Democrat, but if if it were my guess. It would be between Susan Rice and Kamala Harris. I mean, that's what I'm hearing from most of the Democrats that I talk to, that those are, are their two top picks because they feel like that they are, um, you know, Susan Rice has no votes to haunt her because she hasn't ever had held elected office before. And Kamala Harris is, you know, she's seen as a politician and not an ideologue. So she's seen as a lot safer of a choice than someone like Elizabeth Warren. So um, that's my take on that from the Republican side. Well, I, I'm glad you said that. I'm, I'm going to give it to you in a second, Amy, but just so stop, put down your phones, don't tweet me. I was not suggesting that, that thinking Fidel Castro was a hero or, or of some sort and uh, accusing Kamala Harris of being ambitious were in the same ballpark. Simply, they were both examples of Democrats eating their young. I mean, uh, criticizing their own potential uh, running mates in that field. Amy? Um, yeah, so I agree with everything that's been said. And just maybe to sort of piggyback a bit more off of um, what Andra was bringing up is that I think it is important to sort of really put in stark terms what we're seeing and sort of the not only sort of gendered lens, but there, there is a race lens, too, that's being put on this discussion. No one accused Pete Buttigieg of being too ambitious when he decided to run to be president. Right. We're now talking about the potential choice of vice president 
and women who have served in public office much more than he has, who have won statewide races, who have been there, right, many of them, and put in their time and are highly qualified, are now being accused of being ambitious and in, in a negative way, right? And that seems sort of odd, right? Like, why is it that all of a sudden that we don't find it odd that a mayor of a fairly small town, when he decides to run for president, oh, of course, when, right, women who have served in, you know, have been the national security advisor, when women who have been the attorney general of the largest, right, one of the largest states and have been a senator from that state, when women who have helped, you know, create uh, independent agencies, federal independent agencies, right, that when they get talked about, somehow their ambition is problematic, right? And so we, we do put that on sort of all women. We particularly put it on women of color and sort of, again, change that, that somehow, right, I mean, Kamala Harris to sort of focus on that one, that somehow the fact that she's been Attorney General of California, that she's been a senator for quite a while, that she has that, that there's something wrong that she should think that she could serve in that office. And we need to think about that, right? Why do we have that difference in reaction? And why do we find that so crazy compared to Mayor Pete? Well, uh, one other quick, very quickly, because we're running out of time, Andre, it, 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 it's bad that Democrats are being so tough on the potential running mates here. But it, as I said, and, and it kind of got lost, this is also starting to feel, I mean, the Democratic convention starts one week from next Monday, and Joe Biden has continued to delay a selection here. It, it does not, I would suggest that it doesn't necessarily do his image any good the longer he delays on this, does it, Andra? Um, no, I mean, I think if he's delaying because new information came out about Karen Bass, then this is actually a very wise move. And, I, you know, I remember because uh, four years ago, the Democratic and the Republican conventions were a week apart. Um, I remember writing my op-ed about Tim Kaine's selection from Cleveland. So in all honesty, it's, it's actually not that that late, and it's actually a, a very modern, the whole sort of vice presidential sort of selection thing is modern, but also sort of picking them before the convention is actually even more modern than that. So I think he'll, I think he'll be fine. Juliana, quick comment before we have to go. I was just going to say John McCain actually uh, – announced that he was going to be picking Sarah Palin, I think, two days before the Republican National Convention. Yeah, all of that is correct. It's just that it's the Biden campaign that keeps delaying. They've, they've set, said, we're going to do it by now. We're going to do it by now. They're the ones who put it up. By the way, a last comment. We're completely out of time. As we talk about women in politics, we should not forget to mention that a, uh, a, a woman, uh, Cori Bush, in uh, Missouri, unseated a long-standing 10-term Democratic congressman from St. Louis. Uh, it be, she's an activist uh, in the AOC style. She unseats a, an African-American uh, male. Another victory, perhaps, we could say, for women in politics. That's it. We're out of time for today's show. Melita Easters, Julianne Thompson, Andre Gillespie, Amy Steiger. Well, thank you for just a terrific conversation. It was a real pleasure to listen to all of you. We're back again, of course, tomorrow. In the meantime, I'm Bill Nygut. Please take care and stay healthy. See you tomorrow. At a time when information continues to come at us faster and faster, sometimes... 
you need to hit pause and rewind. NPR's Throughline takes you back in time to the source of the news stories filling your feed. Find NPR's Throughline wherever you get your podcasts.